With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Salutations, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Nathan Apodaca and A.A. Ron Brake. Now, we're advocates and voices... Um, we're advocates and voices for the unborn with the Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Our topic for today's discussion is going to be on framing the issue. Uh, in other words, what is the central question of the abortion issue? We're going to talk about the pro-life syllogism, which is something that uh, Scott Klusendorf and, and, um, and the three of us and some other pro-life advocates really like to, to drill into because it's a very important thing. So the, the pro-life syllogism, and then we're going to talk about how people confuse psychological complexity with moral complexity, and then we're going to talk about the central question of the issue itself, which is what is the unborn? So when we are making our case for life, oftentimes we put forward a very simple pro-life Syllogism, and this is a, a really easy argument to memorize. In fact, I encourage all pro-life advocates to memorize this argument because it can be put forward as just, a, again, a simple, straightforward case for the unborn. And it's, a syllogism is just made up of, of two premises and a premises and a conclusion. And it goes like this. Uh, premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, elective abortion is wrong. And it also helps for all pro-life advocates to keep this syllogism in mind, as it is the pro-life argument. Many common objections that are raised against the pro-life view on abortion are either red herrings, meaning they distract from the main issue, they beg the question, which means they assume what they're trying to prove, or are secondary issues that, while they are important, basically take the back seat to the issue that we're going to be talking about today, which is the main issue on the abortion topic. So we'll talk a little bit more about the objections here in a moment, and we'll we'll actually talk more about the syllogism in a show in the future. But 
what makes an argument sound or unsound or valid or invalid? Well, uh, the terms valid and sound are often used loosely when people have discussions. Um, they usually use the terms valid or sound to indicate something like, you know, your argument is true or your argument is a good one or something like that. But in logic, the terms valid and sound actually have technical meaning. A syllogism is made up of three statements, two premises, which lead to a conclusion. Now, arguments cannot be clear or unclear or true or false. Arguments can only be valid or invalid or sound or unsound. Now, your terms can be clear or unclear. In fact, in order to have a good argument, your terms have to be clear. Your premises can be either true or false. But what makes an argument valid is that if both premises are true, your conclusion must also be true. It cannot be false. What makes an argument sound is that it is valid and that its premises are also true. Now, an argument can be valid but unsound. If I argue, for example, all dogs have feathers, Snoopy is a dog, therefore Snoopy has feathers, that argument is valid because if both premises are true, in other words, if it is true that all dogs have feathers and that Snoopy is a dog, then the conclusion that Snoopy has feathers must also be true. But the argument is unsound since one of the premises is false, the premise that all dogs have feathers. So an argument can be valid but unsound, but an argument cannot be invalid and sound. If an argument is invalid, it is automatically unsound. You don't even have to investigate the truth of the premises if you are dealing with an invalid argument. So there's your, uh, your brief uh, Logic 101 lesson for today. And so that's why it's, it's very important for us to kind of uh, stick to that pro-life syllogism, because in order for an abortion choice person to justify their claim that abortion is morally permitted, then they have to be able to respond to our argument. And they have to respond to our argument in a way that actually addresses our, our, our argument. So they would have to either prove that our argument has gone wrong somewhere, that it's invalid, or they would have to prove that it's unsound, that one or both of our premises are false. So again, the pro-life syllogism goes like this. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Again, very simple and straightforward. But let's define a couple terms so we know exactly what we are referring to when we use certain terms there. What do we mean by abortion? By abortion, we simply mean the intentional killing of a human fetus or human being. And this definition should really be uncontroversial. And as we talk about the science of embryology, I think this will become more clear, but abortion is the intentional killing of a human fetus or human being. Uh, and then what do we mean by elective? What do we mean by elective abortion? When we speak of elective, we are talking about those abortions not medically necessary to save the mother's life. So we're talking about the vast majority of abortions that are done more for socioeconomic reasons, uh, not in the case of saving the mother's life. Even pro-life advocates acknowledge that there are certain situations, such as in cases of ectopic pregnancies, where the mother's life may be in danger. We are not referring to those situations, but rather uh, elective abortions, again, done for socioeconomic reasons. Right, and so when we use the term elective in this argument, we're basically using it in the same way that we use it for any medical procedure, such as uh, um, a procedure to remove a cancer is not elective because it's medically necessary, but plastic surgery would be considered an elective surgery. Would you say that's, um, that's pretty much what we're, what we're doing here? Absolutely. Also to clarify for the audience, most of the time when we're talking about abortion, we are talking about elective abortions, not medically necessary abortions, since those make up a very small minority of cases. So a couple of examples, uh, like we mentioned, objections that do come up to the pro-life argument and how many of them do distract from the main argument itself. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. 
abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, therefore abortion is wrong. Many objections and questions that people will ask actually have nothing to do with that argument. So you've probably seen something like this on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, just wherever, or even talking to people on the street. The question comes up, why are pro-lifers so pro-death? Why do pro-lifers not support universal health care? Why do pro-lifers support war? Why do pro-lifers not support welfare? And those are good questions. Why don't we support those things? But they're secondary issues. Pro-lifers don't support welfare. It doesn't mean they're wrong on the issue of abortion and what makes abortion wrong. Now, maybe we are wrong on that, but that needs to be demonstrated that we are wrong and that abortion does not intentionally kill an innocent human being. For example, if abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, then it's wrong regardless of what a pro-lifer stance on, say, universal health care is or on military action is. Pro-lifers are not arguing that universal health care is a good idea. Well, let me back up a little real quick. A lot of pro-life conservatives get this question asked, and it's more on political discussions, but it does tie into this, is uh, many pro-lifers don't argue that universal health care uh, shouldn't be used because they want to or they think that people who need it are less than human. They're actually arguing in many cases that universal health care is not necessarily a good idea, and that's why they don't support it. But even if they are inconsistent, it just means they're inconsistent. It doesn't mean they're wrong on abortion. So the person asking that question has to show how they are wrong on abortion. So after we've established our pro-life syllogism, the second point that you had brought up, Clinton, that we're going to be discussing is the issue of psychological complexity and moral complexity. And there are a lot of individuals who approach the abortion issue and debate thinking that this is a very complex issue because there are so many things we have to think about. Of course, we have to think about privacy. We have to think about choice. We have to think about uh, unwanted children that are born and economic hardship, so forth and so on. Not only that, but women can often face emotional and psychological trauma. No one denies that uh, abortion may be psychologically complex. Women may struggle mentally and emotionally with their decision regarding abortion. But it doesn't follow from this that abortion itself is morally complex. Uh, it is wrong to kill innocent human beings simply because they are unwanted in the way or can't defend themselves. For example, a mother suffering from postpartum depression may struggle psychologically about killing her newborn, but that doesn't mean killing newborns is somehow morally ambiguous. And the same goes for the issue of abortion. The fact that women may struggle psychologically or emotionally or mentally doesn't mean that abortion itself is a morally complex issue. And, you know, something else we should keep in mind, the fact that people do struggle with the psychological complexity should give us pause when we consider the moral implications of promoting abortion. After all, if the unborn are not human, then there should be no real emotional or psychological issues involved whatsoever. For example, if I go into the dentist today to have a tooth pulled, I may dread having the appointment but I don't have to weigh the moral issues of my decision to pull it. However, many men and many women who choose abortion do report a deep emotional and psychological issue in doing so. They really struggle with the decision. And the question is, why the fuss if abortion is no big deal morally? And so that brings us back to the central question that we're talking about today, which is, what are the unborn? 
Yeah, and I, I think it's important to keep in mind the psychologically complex parts of the issue, not in that it has any bearing on whether or not abortion is moral or immoral, but it helps us, you know, like if we get our way that abortion is finally illegal, then it, then it would help us to understand the, the plight that these young people are, uh, or older people are in and allow us to, to kind of have a discussion about what should we do once abortion is, is uh, illegal? What kinds of uh, things should we offer to help uh, single mothers in need and things like that? So the central question then is, what is the unborn? Now, before we even talk about what the unborn is, often we'll hear from an abortion choice advocate the phrase, nobody knows when life begins. Well, obviously, as pro-life advocates, uh, we don't agree that nobody knows when life begins. In fact, there's actually good scientific evidence to believe that uh, human life begins at fertilization. But what if the person is right? What if nobody knows when life begins? Well, what follows from that? I would argue that really nothing follows from that. If you're not sure that the unborn entity that we're killing is a human being, then it seems like the benefit of the doubt should go to life. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments, uses a few examples to illustrate this. For, for example, if you're driving down a dark highway and you see a coat lying in the middle of the highway and you're not sure if there's a person under it or if it's just a coat that blew out of somebody's car, well, you're not going to drive over it if you're not sure that there's not a person under there. Or if you're out hunting with a friend and you hear a rustling in the bushes and you're not sure whether it's a deer or your friend, you're not going to take a shot unless you're Dick Cheney, that is. You're going to wait to make sure that what is in the bushes is a deer and not your friend. Or if you're about to blow up a condemned building, you don't blow it up if you're not sure that the building is empty. If there's any possibility that there could be someone in there, you're going to send someone in to check. If you don't, then you're guilty of some kind of crime, at the very least criminal negligence, for not making sure. So Peter Kreft, who's a pro-life philosopher, came up with a, with a formal argument to illustrate this point. I've termed it the epistemic argument. I don't know if he has ever given it an official title or not, but the argument is essentially that there are, there are one of four possibilities when we kill the unborn entity. Either the unborn is a person, we know it, and we kill him. The unborn is a person, we don't know it, and we kill them. The unborn is not a person, we don't know it, and we kill them. Or the unborn is not a person, we know it, and we kill them. In the first situation, the unborn is a person, we know it, and we kill them, we're guilty of murder. In the second situation, the unborn is a person, we don't know it, and we kill them, then we're guilty of manslaughter. In the third situation, the unborn is not a person, we don't know it, and we kill them, we're guilty of criminal negligence, in the same way that someone who blows up a condemned building without making sure that it's empty is guilty of criminal negligence. And, and, and the fourth situation then is that the unborn is not a person, we know it, and we kill them. And in that situation, in only that situation, are we not guilty of a moral crime? Now, no one has ever conclusively proven that the unborn is not a person. So since nobody has ever conclusively proven that, then the odds are stacked against us that we're not committing a moral crime. In 75% of the cases, we would be guilty of some kind of moral crime. The benefit of the doubt should go to life because of the odds stacked against us. Since the odds are stacked against us that we're not committing a moral crime, then we basically have a moral obligation not to be killing the unborn human being. That's exactly right. When it comes to the central question, what is the unborn, uh, another helpful way to think about this is by looking at an illustration offered by Greg Kolkel. And this is a pretty popular illustration that's used by 
many of those arguing for the pro-life view. Greg Kokel says this, Imagine that you are standing in your kitchen washing dishes, and you have your son or daughter, maybe a niece or nephew, come up behind you and say, Mommy, Daddy, or Auntie, Uncle, can I kill this? Now, your back is turned, so you can't see what it is that they are holding. What is the first question that you are going to ask? What is it? In other words, before you can decide whether or not it is moral to kill something, you have to answer the question, what is it that is being killed? We can't answer the question, can we kill the unborn, until we answer the prior question, what is the unborn? And in his book, Precious Unborn Human Persons, Coco says this, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. In other words, if the unborn is not a human person, then what's the big deal? If having an abortion is no different than having a, an appendectomy or a tonsillectomy, if, if abortion is just simply the removal of unwanted tissue mass, then you don't need any justification for abortion. Just have the abortion. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. Again, with all of the, the typical reasons that are the most common reasons that are offered up for those having abortions, those are not adequate to justify killing human beings. We don't kill human beings based on privacy or because they're unwanted or because of economic hardship. Just a caveat off of that, you know, when we were doing the Justice for All outreach in Los Angeles last week, we talked about it on the last podcast, a lot of people would come up to the display that we were doing and say, well, I think that some abortions are necessary, but the question of whether any abortion is morally justified or morally necessary is going to be completely dependent on the central question, what are the unborn? And like Aaron said, all the major questions about poverty, birth defects, even rape and incest, all those questions about whether abortion in those cases is morally justified are going to depend on the answer to the question, what are the unborn? And then also a lot of people will sometimes say that, well, a woman has the right to bodily autonomy. She has the right to do what she wants with her body. Well, the question of bodily autonomy is not the most fundamental question because if the unborn is not a person, then there's no need to justify removing it. But if the unborn is a person, then you better have a really good reason for why you're removing them to kill them. So then when we talk about whether, what the unborn is, which is, uh, which is what the central question is, what is the unborn, we have to make sure that we keep the scientific versus the philosophical questions separate. This is something that I've noticed from some well-meaning pro-life people that they'll tend to talk about, uh, that they'll, tend, they'll basically tend to use the term human being and the term person interchangeably when, when they're, not, they're not really interchangeable terms. Now, it's true, and I would argue that all human beings are persons, but we can't really equate the term person with human being. Otherwise, non-human entities would not be persons. You know, what about angels or God? If, if you believe in, in God and angels, then you would have to believe that they're persons as well, but they're obviously not human beings. And if you don't believe in metaphysical entities, such as gods and angels, then you would want to leave the possibility open for extraterrestrials. We've never conclusively pr proven that there are no intelligent life on other planets. So we really can't equate the scientific term with human life and the philosophical term of personhood. And of course, abortion choice advocates do this too. When they, when they try to tell you that no one knows when life begins, when we're talking about the biological facts of embryology, well, they're, they're, using, they're, they're basically equivocating on the term life. 
And equivocation is a logical fallacy, which means that they're using the term in two different ways. And so when someone says no one knows when life begins, when we're talking about uh, the facts of embryology, that human life begins with fertilization, well, number one, they're incorrect. The, the field of embryology agrees that human life begins with fertilization, but they're also kind of equivocating on that term, uh, especially if they're, if they're somewhat educated on the science of embryology. So if they actually mean no one knows when the entity becomes a person or has intrinsic value, then um, that, that's not exactly true. I mean, people make arguments for it, but it is true that it's not as clear cut as the scientific facts of embryology are. So again, looking at this central question of what is the unborn, there's a tactic that is often employed by pro-life advocates that helps get the conversation back on track to the question, what is the unborn? And this tactic is called trot out the toddler. Many pro-abortion choice arguments beg the question by assuming the unborn is not a human being. And there are all sorts of reasons for abortion that are typically offered. So a lot of times in your sort of street level conversations or conversations with people who are not very familiar with the abortion issue, they will offer up these reasons as justification for abortion. So what we do is we employ a tactic called trot out the toddler. And what this does is it helps get the conversation back on track to the question, what is the unborn, the central question? So for example, someone might say, well, abortion is really about a private choice between a woman and her doctor. Well, you might respond to that by saying, well, can a woman kill her toddler as long as she does it in the privacy of her own home? Well, no, of course not. Well, why not? Well, because the toddler is a human being. And then you have that aha moment. So if the unborn is a human being, like the toddler, shouldn't we protect the unborn just as much as we should the toddler? Why are we justifying in killing the unborn based on privacy any more than we are justified in killing the toddler? Well, a lot of women can't afford children, and so abortion should be legal. Well, can we kill two-year-olds if the mother can't afford them? Well, no, of course not. Well, why not? Well, because the toddlers are human beings. So again, if the unborn is a human being like the toddler, then we're no more justified in killing them based on economic reasons than we are the toddler. Again, a pro-abortion choice advocate might say, well, a lot of these children are unwanted, and they might suffer from child abuse as they grow older. Well, can we kill two-year-olds if they are unwanted and might suffer abuse as five-year-olds? Well, no, of course not. Well, why not? Well, because the two-year-olds are two-year-olds are human beings. So again, if the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, then we're no more justified in killing the unborn because they are unwanted or based on possible child abuse than we are uh, the toddler. And so whenever we hear these particular justifications that are offered up for abortion, we need to ask ourselves, does this justification also work as justification for killing toddlers? And if not, then what the arguments are doing is they are assuming that the unborn are not fully human. The thing to keep in mind, virtually no one who argues for abortion at any stage of pregnancy will support the killing of post-birth <laughs> humans for the same exact reasons women will have abortions. They only do this with the unborn humans because they assume the unborn are not human or not valuable like the rest of us but that is precisely what they need to prove. If they want to prove that they're not a human being, they need to use the science of embryology to establish that. If they want to prove that we have no duty to value human beings at that stage of development, they have to use philosophy, like Clinton just mentioned earlier. So this tactic really does get us back to that central question of what are the unborn. Sadly, it seems that we're moving more and more in a direction of people who are 
arguing for what they call post-birth abortions. And so uh, it's, it's a little worrying, but uh, who knows how much longer it's going to be true that uh, virtually no one will be arguing for post-birth uh, abortion. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't go in that direction, but it seems to be moving that way, that there seem to be more and more, at least philosophers, who are less and less worried about looking like a monster by arguing that we can kill infants. And, you know, because you know, it's true. And philosophers will agree that, yeah, there's, there's no fundamental difference between a late-term fetus and an infant, uh, whereas most of us who have a functioning conscience will say, yeah, so maybe we shouldn't be killing late-term fetuses. Uh, philosophers go in the opposite direction. That, yeah, maybe we should be killing infants if their uh, parents don't want them. That's a, a distressing thing. So we've talked about the three well, we've, we've talked about a few main main points here related to our topic. We talked about the pro-life syllogism, how an argument is valid or sound, and that abortion choice people would have to engage with our argument in order to to prove their, their abortion choice position uh, and refute ours. We talked about how people confuse psychological complexity with moral complexity, and then we talked about the central question, what is the unborn, and talked about a tool that we can use to kind of bring the conversation back onto the central question if it kind of, if it kind of goes off topic, and that's trot out the toddler. So we'd, we'd really like to thank you for listening. We have a Facebook page dedicated to this podcast, which you can continue the conversation with, and we would appreciate that if you, if you would like to do so. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Nathan and Aaron, for joining me. Um, thank you. If, you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. If you like this uh, podcast, we would encourage you to share it around. Uh, we, we feel that the information that we're presenting here is important. And the more that you share it, the more that people will be able to hear it. And if you, if you enjoy this podcast, we would ask that you also rate and review it. We, we appreciate each and every review that we get. Now, this is a, a weekly podcast that we're doing here, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week, on top of all the other work that I do for the, the pro-life field. As uh, Greg Cunningham for Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working to kill unborn babies than there are people working to save them. Now, I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you, the listener, keep me being able to do the work that I do in saving unborn children, going around and educating people and um, talking to post-abortive women and, and uh, people like that. So if, if you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to the LTI website at www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows, where, knows uh, to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, I have a special treat for everybody. I'm going to be interviewing Trent Horn, who's a great pro-life advocate. We're going to be talking about his recent book, Persuasive Pro-Life, as well as the recent debate he did with David Boonin at Stanford. Now, David Boonin is a, is a really, really smart abortion choice advocate, but uh, Trent did a great job in his debate against Boonin, and I, I would like to uh, ask him some questions and kind of follow up, about, follow up with him about that. So we're going to talk about his, his book, as well as talking about his recent debate, and that's going to be airing live. Friday, June 9th, from 6 p.m. Pacific time to 8 p.m. Pacific time. Now, since it's going to be live, there will be a way for you to, to call in and ask Trent any questions that you have. So, uh, so yeah, so we'll be posting that on our Facebook page, and, and you'll be able to tune in for that. Uh, the following week, Nathan and Aaron and I will be returning to talk about the scientific case for human life beginning at fertilization. And once again, I'd like to thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next time.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.